Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mike Maynard. He's the CEO of Napier. They're a B2B tech agency, and apparently, according to ChatGPT, he's a former world-class speed skater. Mike, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Marcus. And I know anyone who's seen me speed skating at the moment is in tears of laughter. <laughs> Excellent. Mike, today we're going to be focusing on marketing, but we're also going to look at blind spots. We're going to look at frequently unasked questions. And I'd, I'd like to also dig into AI, the disconnects between sales, marketing, marketing and everyone else, the pressure that you're put under by the executive team and the uh, investors and what the ripple effects are. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to sort of have a warts and all dig deep into marketing's part in creating both the good and the bad outcomes, because I'd like to explore some of the ripple effects of uh, poorly thought through decisions. I think one of my favorite questions is who pays the negative price for your positive payoff? <laughs> and so before we do that, let's start with a couple of minutes on you. What's your history? How, how did you get to this point? And what is it that really gets you out of bed in terms of your business? I, yeah, it's a great question. So I started my career as an electronics design engineer. I moved into technical sales because I wanted a company car at the time in the UK. It was incredibly <laughs> advantageous. That's so not the you, first yeah. time I've heard that story. <laughs> yeah, so, so it, was, it was a great tax scam to actually have the company provide a car and you got this really nice new car. So I moved into to technical sales because of that. I then... Uh, actually started um, working supporting um, companies across Europe as European Applications Manager, as silicon chip companies call it, which is technical support. Uh, realized there wasn't many places to go, so moved into marketing from, you know, running a, a marketing role for uh, five years for that same semiconductor company. I then went out on a course. And as you do, you know, last day of a long, week-long residential course, everyone goes out, has a few drinks. And someone said to me, oh, Mike, you should really run your own company. And naively at the time, I thought they were being nice, actually, on reflection. I think they were saying, I'd never want to be your boss, Mike. <laughs> but, you know, it's it, it's one of those things. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'd really like to run my own company. About two months later, the agency I was using approached me. The founders wanted to retire, and they're looking for someone to acquire it. And I thought, how hard can it be? <laughs> As it turns out, quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let, let's start with that. So you bought into a going concern. Yes. If you had your time again, what would you do differently in terms of your due diligence? That's a great question. The answer is is embarrassingly simple. I'd work at least a day in an agency before buying one. It was one of those situations where I'd literally never worked in an agency. I'd work client side, but Obviously, you're doing things very differently. Client side, for example, you know, one of the biggest issues is there's there's really no concept of time, of the value of time. So there are projects you need to deliver, you just have to make sure they get delivered. Whereas in an agency, everything is about how much does it cost and how much does it cost basically is a question of how long did it take. So that culture is completely different. Um, and to go in there and try and run a business, you know, and, and I understood. I understood, you know, from a theoretical level, what you were trying to do. But really to, to feel it and understand it from a practical level, having done it, that would have made a huge difference. So definitely getting some experience in an agency was a, a huge mistake. I, I, I just didn't do it. What was your best mistake? 
Oh, wow. I've made lots of best mistakes. My best mistake was probably having a bit of a misspent youth. And so I went to university, you know, studied electronics and spent most of my time at university doing lighting and sound for bands, which I'm not sure many of the academics at universities thought was a great use of my time and I should have been learning more. But actually the reality was, was because we effectively ran a business within the students' union, it was incredibly educational. You got to do all sorts of things. You got to work out budgets. You got to work out, you know, profit and loss, basically, you know, you got to do- On a shoestring. On a shoestring, and you got to deal with very awkward people. You know, the musicians that came in were not always the most friendly. You also got got this exercise of project management. You know, you had to, for example, you're doing a light rig. You had to put up all these lights. And we're talking about potentially having, you know, something of the order of, um, you know, 40, 50, 60 rock lights up for a, a, a big light rig, maybe even more. And we do that two or three times a week. And then the band would go in and go, and this is one of my favorite things that the band came in and went, there's green lights. We're not going to play. I literally said to the manager, are you serious? They're not going to go on stage if there's any green lights in the light rig. And they went, yes, absolutely serious. Then you have to deal with that. You have to get people to climb into the roof to change the color of the light. I mean, all sorts of complex problems that you don't get when you're doing sort of, you know, a degree, but you get all the time in the real world. It would have been very tempting to just have a dummy up there and throw it down for a laugh. <laughs> there, there <laughs> were what bands, you made them do. Yeah, there were bands we attempted to do some bad things for, but generally speaking, we were, we, <laughs> you know, we we wanted to do it. I mean, you know, at the time, of course, you know, being a student, I was, I, I was a fan. I was a fan of a lot of the bands, not so much this one, but a lot of the bands. <laughs> and we had the opportunity to see these bands live and get up close to them that we wouldn't do unless the university had a great reputation for being a place that sort of, you know, fairly new on the scene bands could come and, and kind of learn their craft. And so it, it was great for us because we got to see some, you know, some amazing bands. Okay, well, let, let's bring it up to, uh, to date now. So you typically work in the B2B enterprise space. Experience tells me that enterprise organizations tend to be very siloed, often very backward in terms of technology. I mean, I was speaking to one of my partners earlier today, and she's basically in the large enterprise market, and the, most of them are still using Excel spreadsheets. There's no CRM. There's no coordination in their marketing. There's very little science behind any of their hiring or recruitment, and so on. And inertia seems to be the biggest driver. So when enterprises are looking at their marketing are any of them starting with the company's job to be done and trying to coordinate around that because so much of it seems to be fractured what's going on there that's a great question i mean first i'd like to disagree with you a bit on technology i i think enterprises struggle with marketing technology but the problem is is they tend to use the kind of big ticket expensive systems that are bought on multi-year contracts. So if you look at, you know, what's happening in a, a typical enterprise, they'll quite often have access to great systems. I mean, they might, for example, have a really good Salesforce installation and couple that with, say, Marketo. So probably the leading option in terms of marketing automation. But the problem is they bought this system and they bought it on a long-term contract. They've they've made a huge commitment to it. It probably took them two years to decide to buy it, if not more. And so they're not taking advantage of any of the new innovations unless those are brought to them directly by those big vendors that they're using. So where we see people 
one of the examples is, you know, I, I, I just heard someone talking about, yeah, well, at the moment, internally, we're recording everything in Otter. And, and then we just ask Otter if we need any meeting notes, it's all fine. That would be incredibly difficult to do in a large enterprise, because it would need all sorts of approval and, and management levels of sort of inspection. So I think they have access to technology, but not the same technology as maybe smaller, more agile companies have. Right. So they're, they're constrained by their culture or their policies or both? It's typically policies. It's typically right. approved vendors, contracts with, with particular vendors, things like that, that mean that they're quite limited and constrained in what they can do. Also, the other thing is, is typically the systems they've got, they're things like Salesforce and Marketo. These are not trivial systems to use. They're really complex systems to use. To actually get the benefits can be quite hard because quite often they won't necessarily have the expertise in-house or maybe they've got some expertise, but that poor person or people are just being absolutely swamped by everyone wanting to use them. So they have the, the technology, but sometimes they can't actually access it and use it. Okay, fair dues. I take that on the chin then. Tell me this. In fact, let's start with some definitions. Marketing, what is it? That's such a great question. And I think, you know, particularly post-pandemic, it's really hard to answer. Because typically what's happened is you've drawn some sort of funnel. You know, it's a classic way to do it. You have a funnel. At the top of the funnel is marketing. The bottom of the funnel is sales. And, and you draw a line. And people arbitrarily draw that line. And usually it's something to do with, you know, the early stages of making people aware of a product, getting their interest, making them want the product, you know, this, this sort of awareness, interest, desire kind of stage, that's marketing. And then getting them to actually buy, that's sales. But what we see now, particularly when people have started working from home, there's far fewer sales meetings in B2B, where marketing stops and where sales finishes is really difficult. And if you want my personal opinion, I actually don't think a definition really helps us. It's something that that's almost organic and changing all the time rather than something you can go, this is marketing, it'll always be marketing, you know, forever, forever forward. I mean, we've had a lot of clients. I mean, one client said to me, I don't know what our Salesforce is going to look like in 10 years time, probably five years time. He said, it could be a fraction of the size and people could be doing a lot more transactions online. We, we don't know. It, it's impossible to predict. Again, I am very interested in this because I, I have a view that anything that touches the customer is marketing and sales is a subset. But my question is, across that revenue function, marketing, lead gen, sales, account growth, customer success, product development even, there tends to be a distinct uh, lack of cohesion and alignment. And that's certainly the case in the small and the medium-sized market. I can't imagine for a second it's wildly different in most enterprises. What are the effects of having those disconnects and that lack of alignment and shared purpose in terms of the on-cost, the ripple effects that you see? People are just less efficient. I mean, somebody you know once said, Basically, people are vectors and an organization is some of the vectors, which for me as an ex-engineer is like, oh my God, this is so insightful. For everyone else, it's like, what the hell is he saying? But basically, the concept is, is that everybody has both a speed, so how much effort they're putting in, and a direction, what they're trying to work on. 
And the simple idea is if you line up everybody going in the same direction, it's going to be much more efficient because everybody's going to add up and, and uh, basically they're going to amplify what everybody else does rather than everyone running off in the same in, in different directions. Something we, we know intuitively. But the problem is, is you do see this. You see, you know, marketing and sales not actually necessarily being focused on the same goal. You endlessly see marketing generating, you know, qualified leads and sales throwing them back saying they're all completely rubbish. Neither side is right. The truth is usually, you know, somewhere in the middle. But if you've got marketing doing one thing that's not valued by sales and sales not telling marketing what they want, and so marketing are like, well, what do we do? This is the best we can do. Everybody's wasting effort. And I think getting everybody aligned and really focused on, on moving in the same direction, that's what makes a, a, you know, a real difference. And that's where you see marketing departments working well. In the last recession, I worked with a company that's uh, specialized in dealing with software versioning. And they generated 10,000 leads through a £3 million budget in marketing, of which sales closed one. And then they self-generated the rest because they didn't trust the marketing leads. Now, when they sold, they sold for six times what was in the bank. So they gave away 18 million because that was just money thrown away. And mm. bear in mind, that had been going on for years. So you, you just think about the, the waste that is created because of these disconnects and the, the knock-on effects. So the investors saying, we need to grow by X percent. And then the leadership team saying, right, we're going to throw a load of money at marketing. And then marketing throwing a load of money at, uh, at digital advertising. But when you actually do the mathematics on, in terms of the job to be done, you, know, you get really, really low below 1% returns. And the net result of that is that you then create this workload downstream. So what are some of the decisions that you see emanating from the top, which are a great idea, if you just stop at the first idea, but the best, one of the best bits of advice that I've received in the last year was when you come across a, a good idea, keep looking. So what's the knock-on effect of the not keep looking? I, I mean, I think that that's really interesting. You know, 0.1% conversion rate is pretty low, but probably not, you know, unique by any means. I think it's really hard. And, and maybe one of the things we do is step back and be honest with ourselves. Marketing typically targets a group of people. You know, it can be engineers looking for a particular silicon chip, as an example. But the reality is, of those engineers, most of them are not actually in the, per in, in the process of buying. So quite often, they're working on a design, they're using another vendor, or maybe they're using yours, but they're not actually looking for a new one. And, and this concept of people being in market is something that, that's actually quite popular for, to talk about now. But, but it's really important, because what it says is that and you can pick a number because there's there's so many percentages, but roughly say one in 20 of your audience are actually, you know, ready to buy. They, they want to buy because they've got a need or they've got a project where they're going to need it. And 95% actually aren't going to go and become customers immediately. So first, you've got to understand that. You've got to understand if you're targeting a group of people, most people aren't going to buy your product immediately. Then you've got to do two things. Uh, the first thing is, how do we focus down on the people who are actually going to buy? And I mean, very rarely do I see when you talk about sales qualified leads, which is quite often this, you know, marketing qualified or sales qualified, that's kind of the KPI of marketing. They typically measured on how many marketing qualified leads they get, which is their opinion of a good lead, or sales qualified, which is sales opinion. 
virtually never do you see something that says, this person wants to buy our product now. Because we all imagine that everybody's going to just magically drop everything they're doing, all their other projects, and go, yeah, no, I want to buy your product because it's amazing. That, that's crazy. So first, you've got to think about how you focus down on that group. And secondly, you've got to be honest. You've got to say, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that we generate, if you think about a lead generation campaign, that are not going to buy now. What do we do with them? Let's not assume that you know we have this magic thing where, you know, I, I, and I sometimes think that there's people sat sat around going, well, it's easy. You know, the way things work is we run an ad, the person calls in, the salesperson says hello, the person gives you a purchase order. And it's all mm -hmm. done. It, it, it's magic. It's not like that. Let's, let's be honest. If they buy like that themselves, of course. What I'm hearing you tell me is that neither marketing nor sales has a clue about their buyer's journey. And they're spending all of their time fixated on the short-term pipeline and those who will convert now instead of nurturing the medium to long-term pipeline where they could do a much deeper and wider job over a period of time without putting them under pressure or selling. So when they move from passive to active looking, they've already got a dozen points of contact who are big advocates and know, like, and trust you because you've had time to build a relationship. That, that to me, is what marketing should be doing for sales, not faffing around trying to fill the funnel up at the last minute. That, to me, is idiocy, and it, it goes against everything that is in the interest of shareholder value. But aren't marketing just doing what they're told, which is generate leads? Yeah, but it, um, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I, I think what, one of the problems is that there, there isn't enough pushback. I remember interviewing Mark Schwakey for the podcast, and his big lament was midweek being given new strategy on the basis of you know, the last couple of days' data. I mean, how stupid does leadership have to be? Well, he complained. Leadership said, yeah, I know it's mad, but the investors are telling me. Yeah, and I think one of the issues is, and maybe we're, we're dancing around this and we should be honest, is that... In a lot of areas, people who don't have expertise don't get involved. So if you think about, I don't know, designing a silicon chip, someone non-technical is not going to come down there and say, yeah, I've just had a look at your code and I changed line 743 because I think you mm -hmm. can actually reduce the, the die area a bit there. Nobody's going to do that. But everybody thinks they know about marketing. And everybody thinks that they can go beyond, you know, just saying, well, here's our business goals, help us achieve the business goals. And they want to be more prescriptive. And I think because they want to feel like they have more control, they tend to ask for things that are more specific. And quite often, those things aren't right. And marketers, you know, you said it, need to push back. Marketers quite happily sit there delivering contacts across to sales they know are not going to buy. I mean, that that's shocking. The CMO, gave, or CMOs generally, I think, gave up their opportunity to be CEO about 10 years ago. Because you know, marketing suddenly exploded on the scene. The internet became something that you could actually use commercially. It was you know, day to day. And most CMOs had a really great opportunity. I think channel chiefs have this opportunity now if they can assert themselves. But the problem is that most of the people in leadership think of cold, direct new business because they come from cold, direct new business backgrounds. And if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And you're seeing the same thing um, with received wisdom. 40% of all private equity capital 
goes into the pockets of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Now, that's an awful lot of money from the brightest financial minds on the planet to be squandered on something that might have a 0.0045% actual conversion rate to revenue because they're focused on the wrong end of the problem. If they spent that money nurturing the middle of the funnel, by the time they move into active looking, you're the only show in town. But instead, we spread our people so thin and we have them do stupid things like discount and put buyers under pressure. Yeah, I, I don't think you're ever going to get away from the discount and the buyers and the, uh, being pressurized. I mean, that comes from two different things. One is everybody likes to feel they have a good deal and, and it does make things easier. And also salespeople want to feel like they're putting the effort in. That's always going to be there. But I agree with you. That's not really where we should focus because quite often you're trying to convert someone who's not ready to convert. And I think it's about understanding that market. You mentioned the the buyer's journey. I, I mean, that's something we spend a lot of time on with clients. And it's so important to understand. But it is complex. You know, almost everybody takes a slightly different journey. You can't do this, you know, beautiful map and say, three months after someone clicks an ad, they're going to buy because that just isn't the case. No, but it is difficult, which is what I think causes most people to shy away from doing a good job. Like customer interviews. There is nothing more instructive than having a customer interview with someone who's just fired you or someone who didn't buy from you. We've just done that, actually, with, with somebody very interesting and revealing interview. And I think we can really learn from customers as marketers, but quite often we're kept away from customers because that's the domain of the salesperson. And I think that is a bit of a mistake sometimes. It's a massive mistake. And management and leadership should be speaking to customers. The CFO should be speaking to the CFO, the legal, head of legal to the head of legal. Marketing, heaven forbid, to marketing. Why would you not want to coordinate those resources in order to ensure that the customer gets the outcome that they intended. I think the problem that we're really pointing to is that virtually all marketing and all sales is driven by selfish self-interest. And the customers become a forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse. Oh, wow. You, you're putting it pretty bluntly there. I think the problem is, is that marketing is often done for marketing's sake. And there's all sorts of reasons why. And we've seen campaigns that, you know, clearly are driven because the CEO wants it. And nobody believes it's going to work and everybody has to go through. It's really sad, but it's very difficult to change if it's somebody that high level demanding that campaign. And it may be because the CEO's seen a competitor do it or a company in another market. But I think what it does come down to is, is where marketers can impact things is understanding their audience. And this sounds, I mean, this sounds so trivial. It almost feels like you shouldn't have to discuss it. But if you look at Napier, I mean, we're a B2B tech agency. Over half of our team were either technical journalists or engineers earlier on in their career. So we're not hiring marketing specialists who are going to come in and understand marketing, but not have any clue about the, the customer. The customer really is important. And I think there are people I like to think we're, we're trying to do it, but there are also other companies that are trying to understand their customer. And in some ways, you know, yeah, we can, we can complain about the issues, but perhaps what we ought to do is look at how we can help people be more positive and really understand what their customer wants, how they think, and what's going to influence them. I accept completely that the customer's journey will differ 
case by case. However, there will be struggling moments that we can predict and we can set the tone and preempt this stuff. You know, in, in the legal profession, it's called stipulation. Yes, Your Honor, Mr. Maynard's fingerprints are all over the murder weapon. There's no point denying it. You know, we get ahead of this stuff. But what, what's interesting is that I don't think we ru uh, run to the sound of gunfire. We have to go looking for bad news because that's where the best lessons are. And we've got to go and look for the gaps. In, uh, rather than trying to validate what we believe we know, try and prove ourselves wrong. And that, I think, is a function of marketing that is massively underrated and underutilized. It's another part of sales as well. You, know, you screw up. Go and apologize. Find out how you did wrong. Because inevitably, when your buyer is wrong, 99% of the time, it's your fault. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it's really interesting. We work in the tech sector. And clearly, relying on what worked five years ago is going to be rash because, you know, the technology's moved on. I mean, forget about the, the world of marketing, the fact that the pandemic's made people work from home, the increased use of uh, the internet, the fact AI is now going to have an impact in way, the way people choose products. All of those things are happening. But equally, like the products have moved on, the companies moved on. To a large extent, the market environment's moved on. And, and so, you know, companies' competitors may have come and gone. To imagine that we can do something that worked five years ago and it's still working the same way today, I think is is, is very naive. And, and people do fall for these kind of, you know, rules of thumb. You spend X percent on this and Y percent on this, and then it works. It's like, that's just not true. If you're not reviewing your ICP at least once a quarter, you're going to come unstuck at some point very soon because the context has changed. And this is where sales gets it really badly wrong. And marketing does an even worse job, if I'm being perfectly blunt, which is that they don't really put the effort in to understand the context in which the person that they are selling to is having to operate in. If you think about it, most of the people who are selling today have grown up in an environment where revenue at any cost was the primary driver. You could discount like you, you know, your hair was on fire. You can put customers under pressure. It's really about the volume at the top of the funnel because we're playing the numbers game. Now the market shifted. You have to make a profit. You have to collect cash, which means that everything that made you a hero under the old model now turns you into a villain. But the problem is that most of the generals are still fighting the last war. And you only have to look at what's happened with how people have scaled the idiocy that is marketing assisted with AI. Okay. You're not a big fan of AI-driven marketing. <laughs> I, I am if people use it well, but I've yet to see most of it done well because they're not using it to help them extend their thinking. They're using it to automate lazy marketing. Yeah, I, and I think that that's a really interesting trend there's there's a lot of people selling ai on the basis of improved efficiency so basically taking the grunt work out from some things and i think that's you know that's interesting it's not always very effective it can be more efficient but it's not effective um but it's probably not where the real gold lies it, it, it's an easy you know you talk about people, you know, being perhaps a bit lazy. It's a very lazy sell. It's like, yeah, you can fire three of your marketing team because you 
using this AI to write emails. I, I, I'm not sure that's necessarily a, a great outcome for anybody, particularly the people fired, um, but also the company that's then getting very generic and uninspired email marketing. Well, there, there are two data points which are really interesting and are also a wake-up call for both marketing and sales. One is that 73% of the sale, uh, sorry, 56% of the sale has already been completed by the time they bring salesperson in. And throughout the entire buying journey, they spend only 17% of their time speaking to sellers or vendor organizations. And that is spread across all the vendors that they speak to across the buying journey. So you have very, very few touch points as a seller. What I need from my marketing is the insight to know what conversations to be having and when, so that when I have one of those precious moments, I don't blow it. Because on average, seven out of eight first meetings that salespeople attend do not result in a second. If you want to double the bottom of your funnel, i.e. people who can and will buy, simply increase the number of second meetings, and that will definitely be better than adding more crap in at the top. So I know there's a question buried in there somewhere. Given the kind of patterns of received wisdom, um, you know, this is the way we've always done it. If you're advising a seller who is operating in an environment where their marketing is still the same old claptrap, how can they take control in order that they can build their own funnel and create some certainty? Because if they're depending on leads that aren't in the right ICP, that are badly timed, that are just done for meeting the metrics, they're going to waste an awful lot of their time. And they don't have a lot of that because they're already stretched. What, what advice would you give them? I, I think if you want to fix your marketing, the first place to start is not in marketing. Um, I think assuming that the marketing department works in isolation is, is, is a terrible idea, but it's typically the way these things are fixed. And quite often, ultimately, the result is more of the same. And if what you're getting before isn't any good, more of it isn't going to be better. So I would absolutely start, you know, with understanding the business, understanding the business goals, and then try to rewrite what you're trying to achieve, um, both in sales and marketing, in a way that is written around the goals of the organization, you know, and it, this can apply to all sorts of things. You know, the classic example is, you know, a lead that's ready to buy is not all one value. Um, and typically, most companies, particularly in B2B, will have very, very high value customers and very low value customers. You know, marketers tend not to even look at that, but understand how the business works. And you suddenly go, actually, you know, there are reasons why we care about this particular opportunity rather than this one. And this has driven things like account-based marketing, which is, you know, it's a step in the right direction. Um, and, and actually, you know, if we want to be positive, I mean, we've had a bit of a whinge on the, the podcast, but if we want to be positive, I mean, account-based marketing is a bit of a bright light there. You know, it actually has, perish the thought, sales and marketing people talking about achieving the same goal. That's where I was hoping we were going to end up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because the, the alignment between the two is critical because the, the customer doesn't give a damn. As far as they're concerned, everything that comes from the company, every touch, whether it's you know from marketing, sales, customer success, management, leadership, finance, invoicing, operations, and engineer, it's still the same company. And their experience 
is what matters. And we forget that because we're so fixated on our own little quotas and metrics that we seem to have forgotten that the customer is renting an outcome from us. They don't buy it outright. They rent it. And they'll rent it for as long as it fits. The moment it doesn't, they'll replace it. But our job as marketing and sales is to have that um, periscope, seeing what's coming up, and to be the heavy artillery in terms of opening up uh, opportunity, engaging people, educating them, opening them to possibilities that they didn't realize by looking at collaboration. So a couple of things at the moment, I think, that are going to be really interesting. I'd love your take on this. The arrival of both AI, the shift in context in terms of, you know, we're going into a pretty dark and tough time, and community. I'm very curious about the crossover between AI and community and how we can do that well in a period where we're probably going to need to be a bit resilient. That's three very big areas, AI, community, and the economy, but um, I'll I'll try and address them. So firstly, I actually believe, this is something I I say quite often to people, AI is going to disappear. And people look at me, they think I'm crazy. It's like, no, AI is not going to go away and not be involved. But rather than have these shiny AI bits sitting around where you go to chat GPT and, and do something, and then you have a tool for writing blog posts with AI, and you go to that tool, I think more and more what we're going to see is AI is just going to become more and more embedded in the tools we use normally. Like Intel Inside. Having worked for a company that competes with Intel, I, I don't want to know. I just <laughs> want to, uh, I'm sorry. Great campaign. But, um, <laughs> Intel Inside was a bit different. I mean, Intel Inside was, was an ingredient campaign. It was all about making people care about the ingredient. And it was a genius campaign. I think what's going to happen, you know, is actually, we're not really going to worry about AI being inside. We're not going to have, you know, chat GPT or GPT-4 inside kind of branding. Things are just going to have AI. You're, you're going to, you know, sit down to, for example, create an email. You're going to start typing some some subject lines. You're going to go, oh, I'm really not feeling inspired. And there'll be a little button for suggestions, and it will come up with a bunch of suggestions. And like every AI tool, Half of them will be terrible, but two or three will be like, yeah, I could take that, edit that, and that will be great. Um, And I think, you know, that will be the case all the way through. There'll be little AI helpers, you know, hidden away. Um, We're not going to go to AI and then go to the tool. We've been using it for 30 years anyway. If you found a a bank and they were doing that uh, electronic security check, or even if it was a verbal security check, ICL had developed something and Unisys had developed something 30 years ago. And they've been using this technology. It's ubiquitous anyway, like all technologies. I remember uh, when the mobile phone arrived that we were all going to die and it was going to be the end of communication and then text messaging. And then I remember when the fax arrived. Um, I remember working at the bank and we still use telex machines. I'm that old. And the reality is all new technologies creates a fear because of the uncertainty And I think one of the real missions of marketing going forward is to start creating certainty for the buyer, because wherever there is uncertainty, there's risk. And wherever there is uh, perceived risk, the brain defaults to the worst case scenario. And I think most of the marketing that's out there actually creates dissonance in the buyer's brain. So we've got all this change going on, this amazing technology, but the channel 
has stayed the same and isn't going to change. That's the buyer's brain. So yeah, yeah, I, I bring mean, I all totally that agree. together. I totally agree. And I think you've you've hit on something here. I mean, the Edelman Trust Barometer recently um, was talking about the importance of security and safety in messaging. Um, you know, people have changed, the, the things that are important have changed. But certainly as we move forward, it's much more important for a brand to communicate this safety and security. And one of the reasons for that, particularly in B2B, actually, is that quite often there are multiple products that will absolutely do what you want. You know, you can look at you know, product from vendor A and vendor B, they both meet the, the you know, the requirements. Quite often there's standards they have to meet so that, that they're guaranteed to be the same. So what can a brand do to really make someone feel that they're the right choice? Well, it's all about this, this feeling of if we pick that brand, nothing's going to go wrong. But yet in B2B, it's still about we've released this new product and it's five times faster than the last one. It's like, well, everybody else is five times faster. So it's not differentiating. It's not exciting. Tell us why it's going to keep me in a job. And and this is really, really important. I'm so glad you raised it. Um, The neuroscience tells us what goes on in people's brains when they're put under pressure. And Typically, when we put our salespeople under pressure, and bear in mind, this is institutionalized in our playbooks and in our selling methodologies and in our management style, where we actually encourage our sellers to put the buyer under pressure. And often we'll say, you know, Mike, bring it home or don't come back. We switch off their prefrontal cortex, which is where the clever stuff happens. It's the control center. It's where language, reason, logic uh, reside. Then we put them in front of buyers and we try and pressure them to buy before they are ready. And we trigger the insular succumbents. And that is where disgust and contempt reside. We actually institutionalize that behavior. And then we wonder why the middle of the funnel is so fat. And there are so many closed, lost, no decisions. We lose mostly to the status quo. So again, if we think about what marketing really needs to do, and we start thinking as the customer, in order to move the customer, we have to create certainty. We have to create peace of mind for them that we represent zero risk. And in fact, if you look at the trust equation, Charlie Green's fabulous book, Trust-Based Selling, can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Trust equals credibility plus reliability, i.e. it can do what you say it can, and it does it, yeah, plus intimacy. And that's the bit that's always missing. He says, that's the most important operator. He's one of my coaches, thankfully. And that goes over self-orientation. But if your intent starts by being how can I close this uh, business? What can I do to make my quota this quarter? Your intent is already in the wrong place. So how do we get people to focus on the medium term so that they can nurture relationships and meet the customer where they are or where they're going to be? That's a really difficult question because people tend to think short term. I mean, I remember back, you know, when I was, um, first out in sales in the late 80s, you know, the consultative salesperson was the big thing. And everyone wanted to be the consultative salesperson. And there was a company doing it in courses. And it it was all very cool. And everyone was going to sit with the customer, understand their needs, rather than just sell. And now, 45 years later, we're looking at the same thing. And we're saying people are still not doing it. And I think it's, it's a really difficult problem. Because at some point, 
people get under pressure, they need to deliver results in a certain period of time, whether that's a business needing to deliver it to their stock market, or whether it's a salesperson needing to, you know, deliver a sale to a sales manager. And we revert to these short term tactics, which, I mean, they might work, but on balance, they're much less effective. And we go for this kind of short term gain, and take that long term pain. It's not good. I don't know how you change human nature. But I think, you know, you're unlikely to ever see a situation where salespeople are given long periods of time to deliver results, which, you know, particularly in our world of B2B, that's what you need. Again, I think if we're going to uh, unpack that, we need to focus on the medium term so that we have fewer accounts and we can work deeper and wider within those accounts and develop real relationships with those people and real understanding of the interplay between the different stakeholders because we have evaluators, we have decision makers, we have recommenders, specifiers, users, we have financial buyers, we have technical buyers. And the average coverage in a company of over a thousand, there was a study done in 2019, I think it was 1.65 decision makers when there's at least, I mean, back then there used to be about six or seven. Now I'm seeing up to 16 on a buying committee. If they're not going to buy, it's up to 30 um, because then they're in the free consulting mode and they're you know, fishing. But it just baffles me that we can spend so much time repeating history and not learning from it. But I think we also have the issue that, you know, sometimes we don't want to be honest about the situation. So, that marketer doesn't want to admit that they know, you know, one in 20 of the, the contacts they're generating as leads is actually in the process of, of being ready to buy. And 95% are not going to buy immediately, no matter what you do, because they don't have a need. Nobody wants to admit that, you know, nobody wants to admit. How that, do we not attract them then? How do we engage with those people, but not have them engage in our sales funnel? I think you have to really understand the, you know, the buyer's journey and you have to understand what people are doing and why someone taking this action would qualify as a lead, whereas clearly they're not. Um, and so classically in B2B, and, and I mean, this is, this is stereotyping it terribly, but classically in B2B, you know, particularly technical products, you offer a white paper and anyone who downloads the white paper is a lead if they're not a student or some other criteria, they're a marketing qualified lead, magically, you know, moving them there, they're getting that white paper to learn, they're not getting that white paper to buy a product. So you've got to really build, I think, your campaigns, once you've generated those leads around understanding what they want, and giving them what they want, rather than trying to just force a product to them when at the right time. Yeah, that's the key. So context, Mike, I think we've massively overrun because by the looks of it, we've been chatting forever. This has been fascinating. Tell me this, how can people get hold of you? Well, people can obviously look for me in the history of speed skating. And if they do find a Mike Maynard, I'd love to know. But no, seriously, um, obviously, LinkedIn is a great place to go. So um, Mike Maynard on LinkedIn. I'm at Napier. You can contact me through the Napier website, which is napierb2b.com. So that's N-A-P-I-E-R. B, the number two, the letter B again, dot com. Or alternatively, I mean, if you just want to email me, I love talking to people. So just email me. I think most of your listeners are smart enough to work out that if I'm CEO of the company, my email address is mike at napierb2b.com. Um, and that goes straight to me. I read all my emails. So please send me an email. Excellent. Mike, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and 
you could whisper in the ear of your 23-year-old self, what one choice bit of advice would you give? I would say to them, and this links quite interestingly to what we've talked about before, but I would say be more confident, try more things, take more risks, because frankly, most people don't know what they're doing out there. And we're all trying to work it out. We're all, we're all struggling. And actually, when I was 23, I didn't realize that. And I think taking more risks and trying more things would, be, would have been a great thing to do. Yeah, when you're in your 20s, you tend to take things like that rather seriously. I was a headhunter for many years. And what I discovered was the higher up, the freer their lips, because everyone down the food chain was worried about getting in trouble or saying something they shouldn't, whereas at the top, they didn't give a damn. So that was interesting. Mike Maynard, thank you. This has been really interesting. I would love to get into a deeper conversation again in the future and really look at how it's possible to create community within the business so that there's greater alignment and that people are using their own website, for example, and people are giving discretionary effort because they want to. I'm curious because I think marketing has a function there and the internal communication is uh, something that marketing isn't, we don't, we don't really talk about enough. Is that something that would be an area that you'd cover? Definitely. I mean, we're trying to obviously work it out in Napier, right? So we're a, a hybrid. We've got some people who are remote, some people who are coming to the office, people coming to the office, not all the time. How do you build that real strong sense of community? Because realistically, as an agency, that's what an agency is. I mean, people, you know, say, well, an agency is just the, the employees, the people who work for it, but they could disappear overnight if you don't have something to bind them together. So I, th- I think that's really interesting. I, I am aware I skipped over that and the economy as well. So, uh, so I did duck two big questions there. You did, but we'll come back to them. If you're somebody who carries a quota, whether it's a personal target or a team target, and you're training isn't working anymore. You're finding that it's more difficult to get in front of people. It's the sales cycles are longer. What used to work doesn't work anymore. Or you're finding you're reverting back to type when you're in front of the customer and you're doing what you learned first as opposed to what you were trained to do, then it's probably a good idea to give me a call because what I'll do is I'll help you identify and work on the building blocks that allow you to build your own authentic system in your own style. So no copycat tricks, no ninja moves. And the net result is that your sales pipeline will end up becoming certain. Your revenues become certain because you're focused on the right end of the problem. So if that's something that would be of interest, then please do get in touch. You can email me, marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn, and there'll be a link in the blurb as well. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.